doesn't feel like the last week before Christmas. Oh yeah, I was getting my coffee this morning and the lady that was there was like, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. I went, feels premature. Feels like this should be something max in a couple of days. Oh, it's the lack of the snow. Maybe it's that I haven't done any shopping. I'm not there. I'm just not there. I think I think there's something to it. I've done some holiday parties. I think all of us have. That that's like the most festive thing I've seen is some ugly Christmas sweaters at some bars. That's pretty much it. That's like how I'm measuring this so far. Anyways, everybody's gearing up. I know it's a stressful time of the year. The good news is, is that your hockey team locally is not stressing you out. Or at least they shouldn't really be. Because the Leafs have been great. It was an awesome weekend. They embarrassed Kyle Dubas. We got a million shots of Kyle Dubas just completely befuddled, upset, frustrated, angry, trying to hide it in his booth next to the turncoat, Jason Spezza. The guy who just spoiled all of his goodwill here in the city of Toronto by deciding to depart the organization and follow Kyle Dubas to Pittsburgh. Um, it was a fun night. It was a, it was a shockingly fun night. I, I, I do think that there's a small faction of Leaf fans that don't really understand the Kyle Dubas stuff where they go, I, I don't get it. Wasn't he dismissed? Wasn't he fired? Wasn't he let go? Why should people be upset? I still think that the situation played out so strangely That some people, some people harbor some resentment. Personally, I don't really. I do think that if you're going to be the general manager of this hockey team, Brendan Shanahan was right in the assertion of, hey, you should be all in or not. And I do think that some people felt it was a little bit lame to go, I'm not going to be somewhere else and I really need to take time and make it about my family. And then all of a sudden, you know, a week later, he's going down to Pittsburgh, the place that was rumored to be interested in him all along. But who cares? That stuff aside, to me, the, the major thing was this fan base was just tired of the same thing over and over and over again. And not only that, it was toxic the way that people would just argue about whether Dubas was the greatest GM who ever came into hockey or whether or not he was just the worst general manager that was a nerd who wore glasses and you couldn't have them because he wanted a hockey team to be soft, even though there was actually a lot of evidence to the contrary. Although this year doesn't really help his case. If you look at that Penguins team that, you know, has zero grit, zero toughness outside of their captain, who's watching some of his best years float away with a very, very subpar team. But I think for the most part, it was just a bit of a celebration of, man, at least we don't have to do this anymore, you know? At least we don't have to just be at each other's throats over whether or not this GM deserves to be the guy in perpetuity. And so, yeah, the, the president stayed, and I think that's still a weird one to this day just in terms of how the Leafs are going to try to figure out what happens moving forward if there's, say, another major playoff disappointment this year, right? What happens if there is a collapse this year? But ultimately, it was just... <sighs> Felt just a little bit refreshing that there was just a little bit something different and there was a little bit of something that you could discuss other than, is this the all-in year for Dubas? Like, that just bit of pressure off the fan base is what I think you saw Saturday night from people as they were elated with the way that the Toronto Maple Leafs performed against the Penguins. I don't think it's like a real 
bitter thing against you. But for some people, again, it is. But I think for the most part, all you're seeing is people going, man, it's so nice to just be able to watch the hockey team and feel something a little bit different. And by the way, Leafs deserve a ton of credit right now because, and I've been a part of this, they've been nitpicked to death this season. And a lot of it, I think, was pretty fair about, hey, maybe some of the pieces, whether or not they fit, how they're going to sustain some of these injuries, whether or not the coach is doing a good enough job. Are they blending the lines too much? Are they not blending them enough? Are they playing enough games? Did the Sweden trip help them? Did it hurt them? Up and down we go. Are the star players, are they getting enough from Mitch Marner? Are they getting enough from Austin Matthews? Like, go on down the list. We've done it all. What should they be doing? Oh, did they blow it by not acquiring Zadorov? That was right there for them. They have been picked apart piece by piece. And yet, you look at the body of work now, and it feels like they're figuring something out. And I, I've been fooled by the Leafs a million times, all right? I, I, this happens over and over and over again. I'm not trying to make some declaration that, hey, you should believe that this is the year is going to be the different. No, 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 I get it. I, I see the reasons why we discuss some of the things that we do, because you're trying to see if there's a difference in this team that is going to tell you something about being more optimistic about a playoff team. And there's still a lot of parts of, there's some components here that make you go, yeah, you could probably shore up your goaltending. You're really hoping Wolves going to come back healthy. It'd be great to add a right shot D that pushes everybody down. It'd be great to have another centerman that could potentially push Domi out to the wing or that you wouldn't need to rely on him so much down the middle with this group. Or that if you do sustain an injury to one of your top guys, that you just have a little bit more center depth so it's not a Pontus Holmberg. I get those, t- those conversations. But ultimately, the Columbus game was awful. It really was. The comeback was whatever. It was entertaining, but it was an awful game. And they, they shouldn't be applauded for even the comeback because that Columbus team is so, so incredibly terrible. It's, a, it's an AHL team. Like, truly, it's, a, it's really not good. They're very, very bad. And the Leafs should have never given them two periods where they just, you know, basically didn't skate and then turn it on in the third. But the Bruins game now, a couple performances, like the, the Rangers game, now taking that Penguins game seriously where it's a hockey night in Canada and it's a raucous crowd and they showed up and play a wire-to-wire game against the Pittsburgh Penguins knowing that that building was hungry for a win. I think you got to be pretty pleased with the way that these guys have withstood their injuries. I think that you've got to be pretty happy with the way that some of their depth players have actually emerged into not stars, but people that you can have some faith in. And the way that this team is looking right now and the way that this team's rolling now into the holidays. Anyways, uh, James Myrtle, senior managing editor of The Athletic. Good morning. It's a rare Mon- Monday show for us here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I need to get you off the top this week because I, I, I need closure with some of the dubious conversations. Before we get into that, though, um, what do you think is most improving with this team to you? Most improving, like, throughout the year this so far? Yeah, just, it, it just don't you feel like over the last week like two weeks that they've sort of unlocked something here that they are playing better because again, there was the Columbus game, but you look at the rest of the body of work and you say, damn, they do stack a lot of points. We made a lot about the regulation wins. I think rightly so, but lately this team does feel like it's coming together a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, I think a big turning point was the decision they made to get Reeves and Klingberg out of the lineup Mm -hmm. and they're playing Calgary and Vancouver in those games. And those were two of their better performances. And it feels like for me since then, the switch has flipped a little bit. That, so you're just equating it mostly to the absence of those two players? Well, I mean, I think that it's helped immensely. I mean, you look at what was there. You're playing basically a broken player in Klingberg there. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, we lost James. Um, okay. <laughs> I was like, wait, what's happening? It's like, there's no way that's the end of his answer. I think it's more than that. I think it's a guy like Max Domi is finding his footing a lot more. His, his minutes are kind of pretty similar, but I, I just feel his impact more night in, night out. I think that Tyler Bertuzzi is also really finding himself in this market and that people, I don't want to say misunderstood his game, but I think had really, 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 really high expectations of Bertuzzi coming in here because the, the off season was pretty underwhelming. It was, oh crap, what are the Leafs going to do? Oh crap, what are the Leafs going to do? And then they get Bertuzzi on this contract and everyone's like, okay, this is the best. Oh my God, can you believe that they got Bertuzzi on this deal? What a steal, what a steal, what a steal. And they came in, it was a bit of a slow start and he was a whipping boy for the coach and he didn't really fit on that top line seamlessly the way that we all expected him to where it was just going to be Zach Hyman 2.0. And now I'm seeing a, a much better version of Tyler Bertuzzi. I'm seeing a guy who's starting to play way more comfortably with this team who, who really does have a defined role with this team. Feel the same way about Max Domi. I think James's point is the correct one that those two guys being removed, but I, I think it's a little overstated considering Reeves was playing, you know, six minutes a night. They did get a goal from Bobby McMahon. Uh, James, you join me again. But yeah, I, I think the, the point I was just making when you went off is to me, it's like a lot of guys on the team are just sort of finding their footing more so than I think it is just like, hey, they removed uh, seven minutes of a forward and a broken defenseman that, yeah, I think was eventually going to get replaced anyway. Yeah, and not only that, but you get the depth contributions with the injuries with Legison, Benoit. I mean, obviously, Joseph Wall is one of the stories of the mm-hmm. season, but even Martin Jones comes in and plays well. And who could have seen that you would be getting so much from these pieces just coming in basically from the Marlies and playing key minutes for them right now? It it reminds me a little bit of last year, November. They had all those injuries on the blue line. Everyone was kind of doomsdaying what was going to happen with them and they played pretty well and maybe it is that you take so many different pieces from last season it's going to take time for them to integrate with the rest of the roster yeah i've just been impressed i really have been i've been i've been really impressed like a night in night out outside of columbus i've just looked at them and said this is a way tighter team these guys are playing with way more connectivity and I'm feeling the force of certain players a lot more. I've had some, you know, disappointing moments, but it's an 82-game season. So, like, you're going to have those You're gonna have those moments. But ultimately, like, I just, uh, I'm respecting the body of work a lot more than I did when it felt like analytically across the board they were pretty middling and, in fact, maybe a little below average in a lot of spots. And it felt like, boy, they're getting lucky with some of these points. They're getting really lucky with some of these points. I would say that the last two weeks, last week and a half, it's it's felt like, no, a lot of these points are very, very deserved and, Look at some of the things that they've had to overcome, whether it has been the wool injury or, yeah, like not having Matthews on Saturday night and Brody and just still cleaning the Penguins' clocks. I'm saying, yeah, all right, time to, time to lavish them with a little bit of praise. By the way, do you feel like uh, the, I don't want to say the worm is starting to turn, but like the narrative in terms of people appreciating Tree Living's offseason is starting to have a pretty significant uptick? Like that well, part of it is, you know, the two guys you mentioned are removed, gets a little fortunate with that. But now you look at it and the Leafs had such better depth than Pittsburgh had in that game. And that was sort of supposed to be Kyle Dubas's thing. And now it's become Brad Tree Living's thing. Yeah. But I mean, look at all the injuries that the Penguins have. Like they're, sure. you talk about Same an AHL roster. They're, they're playing a chunk of AHL players there on that forward group. So, I mean, the, the biggest struggle for the Penguins this year is they can't score, you know, like they defensively going into that game. I think they were fifth or sixth in the NHL in goals against. So the seven nothing loss is a little bit of an anomaly for them. Mm. Did you see what was being written about Ryan Graves after that game? 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, because uh, yeah, he was the savior. A lot of people wanted him on the Leafs, and they said, boy, that's the signing that they, Toronto should have had. I didn't see anybody what? talking about Ryan Graves in the offseason. What? That was a huge thing. People went, Dubas nailed this guy down, and he should have been a target for the Leafs, and he would have helped balance up the lineup, and it's like he's getting walked by Matthew Nyes, and the people that are writing for them are saying that he should be up in the press box, that he should be sitting. Like, uh, this is actually a point of curiosity that I did want to talk about with you today. Is what, Do you think that there's a, again, it's very, very early on in the season, right? And there's going to be some element of this where people go, man, Evgeny Malkin's getting older, and they've got Chris Letang who's getting older. But Kyle Dubas remade that entire bottom six. Kyle Dubas is the one that brought in Ryan Graves, who, again, people are saying should be benched right now. He gave Tristan Jari that contract extension. He took a big swing on Eric Carlson. Like, he made, he remade a lot more of that roster than people want to say it. The Penguins are what we thought they were. I mean, they missed the playoffs last year. They're, no one thought they were going to be a contender this year. So the play there for them is take a long shot at getting something out of the next year or two with Sidney Crosby. And if that doesn't work, then you're looking at a rebuild and how that's going to work with Malkin and Latang and Carlson yeah. and, and Sydney and everything. I don't know. Like that's a complicated thing to all of a sudden move into a rebuild, but that's where they're at. And that's the role that Kyle Dubas took on was it's going to be really difficult to turn this into something that's going to be a contender this year. Mm. I would argue that if you get Sidney Crosby playing this well, uh, your team should be better. And that if you built this much of the roster, you could have done a much better job at building it out. If this was Toronto, I think that people would be making that case. I will say this. Um, I was talking about this with Bomani Jones a couple of weeks ago, how it was like more in relation to the Golden State Warriors, how sentimentality is one of the new things in sports that actually really hampers a team. It really hurts a team. Where you, you look at some of these just awesome star players who have done so much for an organization and you say, well, how can you move off of Clay Thompson, right? How can you move off of Draymond Green? How, how can, after, after being a dynasty, essentially, a modern-day dynasty, I know people don't like to throw around that word, but in the salary cap eras, for these teams to win this much, how do you turn your back on these players when they're asking for money? And it's like we've seen it with the, we saw it with the Blackhawks when they started to dole out the contracts, like the Brent Seabrook one was the most famous of them all. I know that the flat cap has obviously hurt some of these teams, especially in hockey, but I look at the Penguins and say, damn, this is now seemingly becoming a price of winning where if you win, you, you might end up hurting your post-winning window because you have to dole out these past performance contracts because it would feel weird to watch Evgeny Malkin in a different sweater, right? And all of a sudden, it's like Sidney Crosby is helping calling the shots, and if they go to him, of course he's going to want Malkin and Latang to stay. Of course he doesn't want those guys to go. Yeah. I mean, it, it, San Jose is another one. Washington. You know, you get these teams that had success. Even I mean, in the case of San Jose, they didn't end up winning the Cup. So that puts them in a pretty tough position where you've got the Vlasic contract and, you know, they've been able to move out Burns and some other pieces. But, you know, the flat cap, if you're a winning team and you're an aging team, mm-hmm. you know, the cost of doing business has been the Seabrook contract, you know, and you can see a team like Tampa trying to push against that. You know, there, there's this mm-hmm. battle potentially with Stamkos over his next contract and they've moved out a lot of players depending on, but even for them, it's been hard for them to stay competitive. And that's just the landscape right now with the hard cap. And 
the, the, the right decision for Pittsburgh is probably to tear it down and start again. But like I said, I don't know how you do that with Crosby there, as you said, that wants to keep winning. Mm-hmm. And I, I mentioned this on Leafs Talk, but there's, it's impossible to trade Sidney Crosby. Like, you just can't do it. No. You cannot do it. There's no scenario outside of him saying he wants out. And I don't, <laughs> there's nothing about Sidney Crosby that would ever have indicated throughout his career that he would ever be giving yeah, that indication to the organization. Okay, so it would be kind of cool though, JD, yeah. to see him in the Mario Lemieux role with the next one. If they could find a way to do that, like can can Crosby play another four or five years, mm-hmm. and potentially the last two of those years are with a kid that they picked in the top three or something, and he can be kind of in the mentor role, and the Penguins can start another ascension. I mean, I think that that's kind of mm-hmm. where they need to start directing their focus right now. I agree. It's just heartbreaking because you watch him play, and there's just a, he's he's mm-hmm. he's awesome. He's he's genuine. Like, how many players do you think have been better than him this season? Three, two. He, he's yeah, he's a great player. Yeah, um, you know, hopefully that. World Cup next year is a good showcase for him because you're right. I mean, he not, might not play a lot of meaningful hockey the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. That's it. And, you know, say I, I don't like the player movement of the NBA. I love it when guys see it through their entire careers with one team. It really does make me feel awesome. But yeah, this is this one is a little heartbreaking knowing that Sidney Crosby is still performing this well at 36. And I, Ovechkin's what, two years older? A year yeah. older? Uh, he's somewhere in that ballpark, right? He's a little bit older than Sidney Crosby is, even though we do think about them as, you know, exact polar opposites of one another. But Sid's playing this well and just individually trying to carry his team. And I don't think, last I checked, this is off the top of my head, but I am tracking it very closely. Last I checked, Ovechkin has now gone 12 games without a goal. And out of his five goals this season, only three of them have actually been on a goaltender, right? Like... And that's someone we thought was never going to age and was always going to be scoring goals. And so for Sid to still be doing it at this level, I'm just, I'm so impressed. I, I really want to watch him compete again. I want to see Sidney Crosby in the Stanley Cup playoffs. I just, yeah, frankly, I'll admit it clearly. Uh, I don't want to see him on Kyle Dewis's team. <laughs> Success. Okay. Uh, was there a tribute for Kyle Dewis? Because we didn't see it on TV and I don't know. There wasn't, right? No, there wasn't anything. Was that, did that surprise you at all? Mm, a little bit. Yeah. They did something for Lamorello, right? When he came through. I can't remember if I'm being I'm pretty I'm sure being they did. I, I, I recall being in the building and I think there was some sort of, although maybe not. I mean, that divorce wasn't exactly amicable either. Uh-huh. But th- what does that tell you? It tells you everybody's moved on. You know, I don't mm. get the sense that there's a lot of, I mean, even Sheldon Keefe, who's been close and played under Dubas for so long said, you know what? Honestly, I'm not even thinking about this at all. Yeah, but that's obviously a lie. <laughs> that's obviously a lie, James. They have to be thinking about it. There's just no way that they couldn't. To me, it's actually, it says almost the opposite. If you've really moved on, then you can be happy for your ex, right? Like if you've really moved on and you've put it behind you, then you say, hey, Kyle, welcome back to Toronto. Hey, Jason, welcome back to Toronto. I actually think that that would have kind of been the petty thing is just to lump them in together, you know, just do like a quick video tribute for the two of them and say, hey, guys, thanks for your work. Quick clap. Get a couple of boos from the crowd, but then move forward, move on. But I did. I I thought it was a little strange, and it, it did make me think that if I was looking at it from the outsider perspective, that there was probably still quite a bit of bad blood between those two sides, and that nobody's buried the hatchet. Nobody's had a conversation amongst each other, going, "Yeah, I saw your side now, and I see it a little differently, and I wish things didn't play out that way." But yeah, best of luck in your new venture. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I don't think there's bad blood between the players and Dubis or no. Keith and Dubis or anything like that. It's at the top of the organization. Yeah, that's what I'm talking yeah. about. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. So, yeah, you think that's still there? 
I don't think that's ever going anywhere. Hmm. So you're like, it's irreparable in terms of the way those two guys communicate. Cause you would think that at some point and someday, you know, like the Yankees and Red Sox do business that those two parties are just like, they're never picking up the phone with one another. Well, I mean, Trey Living is a neutral party in this situation. Like he didn't, he doesn't have anything against Kyle Dubas. Yeah. But you know who you're dealing with when you're making that call. Yeah. It'd be interesting if they do make a trade. Yeah. It would be fun. They, they used to make some trades, right? Dubas used to love making the, the odd trade with, with the Penguins. We'll see. I yeah. mean, maybe the Leafs still want a cherry. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Uh, is, isn't he's hurt right now, right? Like he didn't play yeah. in that game. Uh, okay, so that brings me to this. And I know that, you know, we talked a little bit off air, but when Dubas left, you know, you reported, you did a great piece up on your site about, hey, this is, we're going to continue to see fallout from this. This isn't over with just like the departure of Jason Spezza. And a lot of us even watching the draft, we felt like, oh, okay, what's going to happen next? Who's the next one to go? Tree Living's not on the draft floor. Uh, are they letting someone run their draft who might not even be here two weeks from now? How is this going to work with Pridham? How is this going to work with the rest of the organization? There are apparently a lot of Dubas loyalists within the building and that there was a fracturing. And then that just seemingly went away. And now the Leafs do seem pretty stable. I, I just, I'm curious what your read is on all of that. Uh, well, four people left. Yeah. Dubas, Spezza, Belfry, Elkin were yep. the people that left. And what I was told is that some people were happy at staying in Toronto with a contending team. You know, either they had families or they didn't want to leave. And then there were a lot of people that were under contract that didn't want to leave. So I don't know if there's still going to be an exodus that happens over the next two years. Maybe we'll see more people move to Pittsburgh, but maybe not. I mean, if the Penguins fall into where they're not competitive and the Leafs continue to be a contender, I think looking at that, Toronto's a pretty good place to live. It's the top city in the NHL in terms of market size. A lot of people are being paid above their standing compared to around the league with the role they have. So that's part of why you have a lot of people wanting to stay. Hmm. But yeah, it does feel smoothed out then is what you're saying. Like money. So basically just money is making everything fine. I I mean, if you're under contract Mm -hmm. and you can't break your contract to go somewhere else, then you're not going anywhere else. So there's some people in that situation, but, you know, I think tree living did a good job of coming in and being a peacemaker and, you know, cleaning the slate for a lot of people and giving them opportunities. And that's what you need to do when there's a leadership transition like that. That's why I always thought that the Sheldon Keefe contract extension, like that was what it was really all about. It was extending the olive branch and proving that, Hey, okay, two things. It was two things can be true. I think that you were still extending them because you thought, Hey, who were you going to replace them with? It wasn't exactly a, a deep field of coaches that were available at the time. So you looked around and said, all right, there's, there's no ready-made replacement. It, it didn't seem anyways from everybody I talked to that Tree Living had a guy that was in mind, or I never heard one anyways of somebody that was really out there that they were interested in. But the secondary part of it was it was finding a way to get common ground with a guy who was brought in by Kyle Dubas, who was uh, very much you know at the very top, of his, you know, of his guy, or his guys, and you made peace with him and you started to kind of smooth things over and then show that you had that stability moving forward. Yeah, I mean, the key thing was interesting because if you really wanted to go scorched earth and change the regime and everything, he was the one that was mm-hmm. the most connected and had the most history with Dubas. Right. So it's interesting that he stayed and that, he's happy in that role and that he's extended and that there was that 
faith shown. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I mean, Shanahan and the Leafs wanted to keep Dubas as well. I mean, that's why there was a negotiation that happened there. Yeah. I just, I think that it was like, Hey, if he can smooth it out with Sheldon Keefe and get Sheldon Keefe to want to be here and show that there's an extension that's like, Hey, bygones be bygones with everybody. This is a fresh relationship. It's a fresh start. Everybody can find something there. You know, if it's, if Keith is available, he serves as a figurehead to all the other guys in the organization that had their doubts, whether or not they would be getting, uh, that they would be given an opportunity to show themselves as more than just like quote unquote dubious guys. Um, anyway, uh, all right, moving forward off the, you got any other thoughts from Dubas being here over the weekend and Shanahan and all those guys? I mean, can you imagine how hard it would have been them for to sit in that press box and watch that game? Yeah. It's just painful. It's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) What? It's true. It's like Leaf fans really enjoyed it. I, I don't, I think it was a very, very small minority of fans that weren't glee, like gleeful about what was going on there. You know, it's interesting that Dubas became one of the most polarizing people I've ever seen in being around. I've been around the least for 20 years and I've never seen anyone. I don't think that's that polarizing in that role, which is interesting because they've had some terrible GMs and mm-hmm. huge mistakes have been made. But that was it. When those GMs made terrible mistakes, there was just a consensus amongst the fan base of hating the front office. And the <laughs> difference, there was, there was two things. I was actually thinking about this, uh, I think last night about, how Kyle Dubas gets a bit of an unfair rap because I think part of this is just the time we live in, right? It's just, this is way more polarizing times. Social media seems to amplify things and make us think that there's more divide amongst us than maybe there actually is, right? If you're sitting at a sports bar and and I've done this before where, you know, I had a, I had a guy that worked on the show that was a huge Dubasite, like would be talking up these prospects that we'll never see here, right? Like he'd be the, the Ronies and the Topies and the, you know, he would be talking about these guys like they were this next wave of incredible talent that was going to be showing up for the Leafs. Like just to the point where, you know, giving credit for things that either have not happened yet or way too much credit for something that did, right? And way too many excuses for things. Like it really was, there was a faction of the fan base that seemed to tie their identity into Dubas in a way that I've never seen with other general managers. Like no one looked at Brian Burke and said, this guy represents me, <laughs> you know, as a hockey fan. And, and I think that ended up happening with Dubas. But either way, I think the social media stuff played a big part of it. I think that just the pressure of the team and the time and the expectations and him just being the face of, well, why isn't this getting better? Because this guy was supposed to have all the solutions. He was the, like, prince that was promised type of guy. They moved off of Lou Lamorello. The contracts went poorly. It just divided the base in a certain way. But, yeah, I think that that's the, the major point of relief is that you don't have this discussion amongst the fans anymore. There are people that debate the tree living moves. There are people that debate whether he's had a successful start to his Maple Leafs tenure, but it does take a little bit of the pressure off. And weirdly, you know, at the time, I thought this is super strange because Shanahan had a target on him at this point too, right? Is like they moved off of Dubas and it felt like it was a big pop from people when he did the whole like, if you don't, if you're not a hundred percent of Maple Leaf, then you're not a Maple Leaf at all. And people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then ultimately it's like, okay, well, you're the architect of this stuff. You're the common denominator across all of these different teams. And yet I do feel like at least from an optic standpoint, it has really worked for Brendan Shanahan. Yeah, but they got, they need some success though, JD. I like, agree. I, you know, if the, the bet that they made was on keeping Keith, keeping the core, bringing in tree living, and if they fall on their face in the first round again, there's going to be tons of heat on that front office. I agree. 
But do you think that it's a all-in situation? I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what they do at the deadline here and how aggressive they are. You know, do you just light a whole bunch more picks on fire? Do you, do you trade a Minton or a Cowan to try and make something happen? Or is it something more measured than that? Because the concern you, you have when there's pressure on the front office is that it, it's pick up the furniture and start selling it and do everything you can to win in the moment. And that could do some damage to the Leafs in the medium term. Yeah, this is just, this is again, this is my gut feeling. Uh, Elliot Freeman did uh, report on his 32 Thoughts podcast today that the Leafs are not inclined to move Minton and Cowan, which makes sense because they don't have much beyond the two of those guys, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, clearly you want to be able to try to keep your best in-house assets and that if you are moving off of either one of those two, it's for a, a massive, massive swing. You're not just like flipping one of those guys in a, in a trade for uh, an aging defenseman that is going to not have term. Those, those are, that's what they want. You know, I was talking to Elliot actually when I was hosting um, the pregame on Friday and he mentioned the same thing that that's what they're looking for. So something with term, if they're going to be going all in, um, I just, again, my feeling as of right now, the points that they've accumulated, the way that the rest of the NHL looks, the needs that I feel like they have, but also just the landscape of a ton of parity and not a lot of sellers and some of the prices being a little too high and the assets that the Leafs have are, is there's not that same pressure to add, add, add like there's been in years past. I think that a lot of us are bracing ourselves for a potentially a first round pick for Chris Tanev because they don't have the second. And it like what you would assume that his market is going to be enough that someone is going to be willing to pay a price that's close to that for the Leafs, especially if their first round pick is a later one, which it looks like it's going to be. But, like, I don't know. I, I don't see the, the major splash coming this year. And as much as I agree with you that there will be a huge, huge, huge target on everybody if they fall flat in the first round again, I'm, I don't feel anyways like the pressure will be everybody's got to go clean house and bring somebody else in right now. I feel like it'll be like the next year will be the all-in, okay, now you've got to have it year. You've got to move off of a Marner. You've got to execute that kind of trade or get the Nylander contract done. And then that's it. This is, that's the one. Yeah, I think there'll be major changes on the roster if they fall flat again. I mean, agree, but not in the front office. I mean, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it's been a long time for the Shanna plan, right? Yep. So I, it depends how ownership in the board feels. You know, do they feel like moving off of Dubas was enough of a move and keeping the same roster and the same coach if they don't have success? I mean, that's really the bet that Shanahan's making here is that running it back again to a large extent. Um, so if it doesn't work again, it feels like it's on that group. Okay. So now to the actual team, the dynamics with the group, what are you doing that? Because Martin Jones, it's a, it's a very small sample of these guys playing right now. Right. But the team has looked better with Martin Jones in net, and he has more of the wool qualities, which is like calm rebound control, big, not letting in any of the, just the, the awful ones. Like we saw from Samsonov in the Columbus game where, I think I said it seems like he has holes in his body. And yet the case for trying to get Samsonov was that he's not going to be challenged in that. He is going to have some runway to find his game. And so I'm, I'm torn between the two things of, do you just go with the guy who looks better, but you know is not going to be the solution? Or do you sacrifice maybe some points in the standings right now in hopes that Samsonov finds his game, knowing that that's the higher upside play? I think you give Samsonov a couple more chances, but probably what you're looking at right now is a tandem, right? Like you alternate between the guys, depending on how it goes. 
you know, um, I'm assuming Jones is going to play against the Rangers tomorrow just with how well he played against the Penguins. Then they've got some easy games coming up. You can flip one of those to Samsonov, and you cross your fingers, and you hope he looks better. And if he does, then he gets more chances. And if he doesn't, then Jones gets more than that. Yeah, but that's kind of the scenario that I'm outlining is the dangerous one in terms of continuing to lose him from a confidence standpoint. Like, yeah. if your bet is, hey, Samsonov eventually is going to be better than Martin Jones, and, hey, Samsonov did do his best work last year when he didn't feel challenged by Matt Murray and the net was just his and his alone, that you're saying, hey, who cares about the results? We're sorry, Martin Jones, you played great, you had the shutout, but Samsonov's the guy, you're playing him Tuesday night, and maybe you're, you're even playing him, like, a couple of games in a row. Yeah, I just don't know how you can do that with how he's playing right now, though. I, I mean, you can't. Can you throw your team under the bus and just forfeit games? You need to see a little bit more from Samsonov before you're saying, "Hey, you're going to get a run of games here." Yeah, the thing is, is like they, the, the first game that they played with Samsonov and at the Nashville game, you know, they really tightened the screws defensively, especially as the game went on, and said, "All right, we're not going to let this guy be tested in horrific ways." And then the Columbus game happens and he's in net and he was brutal in that game. Like again, the, the save, the, the goals, three, four and five against him were about as bad as you can see from a goaltender in the NHL. Like truly, truly, oh, you've, you've lost your game. You've lost your confidence. You've lost the team's confidence. That, that type of dreadful didn't get pulled, but whatever. And I think that was actually something too, that they just left him in the net and was like, no, this is your mess. Clean it up. Um, but I almost do feel like there's some obligation for the, from the team in front of them to just say, hey, this is one of our guys. He was with us in the postseason last year. We need to make sure that we are tight, tight, tight while he's in the net and help him find that too. The way that they've done, like they, they've been better in front of Martin Jones. Yeah. yeah. I think that that's fair. But I also think that there's this, it's almost like the Michael Hutchinson situation now where the team in front of Samsonov is like, when is this guy going to let us down? Totally. And there's just not a lot of confidence in front of him right now. And that's a problem. Yeah. That's what I mean. I think that there's a, a real dilemma here. I think it's a tough one. And yeah, we'll, you figure what it's, if it's the Timothy Lilligren timeline or something close to that, I think Lilligren missed six and a half weeks, right? Which gives you plenty of time before the deadline to figure out what you have in wool and plenty of time to see if Martin Jones actually does look, um, more than serviceable as a backup. Like if this actually continues, then you feel totally confident in that having those two guys. But yeah, then it does bring into account, hey, what happens with Samsonov here? Like does he end up actually getting waived? It could happen. Or he could be money that you shoot out if you need to create some salary cap space. Or yeah. the other thing they could do, JD, is they could carry three goalies for a while. Like mm. we're seeing that around the league this year more than I can re remember. Uh, Buffalo's done it. Detroit's done it. Um they're going to have the cap space with the Klingberg money where they could carry three goalies for a month if they want to. Well, I was going to say that actually, you know, maybe that ends up turning out to be a benefit for them is that they have the Klingberg money, but then also if they're asking to move off of a contract or take something big on, they're just saying, Hey, take the Samsonov contract. It's expiring anyways. How much mm -hmm. like this isn't Peter Morazic, right? Where you're asking a team to go take multiple years of a guy that's well overpaid. This is just, you got to get him through the season and then you can say goodbye. Yeah, and at the deadline, you're only paying a quarter of his salary. Right. So it should be relatively easy to push that out if you need to. You know what? So maybe actually I'm coming around on this. Maybe the spin is that you're really hoping to make Martin Jones feel comfortable and you don't want Samsonov to find his game because the ultimate upside of Samsonov is to use him as, yeah, salary cap filler in a bigger trade. If Wool is as good as he's been this season, mm -hmm. uh, a Wool jones tandem is not the worst idea.
yeah, I, I don't think it's the skill for me. It's just the can you stay healthy question, right? Like yeah. That's it. Because, yeah, I was looking at, I think it was Money Puck. Yeah, Money Puck posted this. I actually have it here. If you're looking at, yeah, their, the way that they evaluate goalies with their goals saved above expected and goals saved above expected per 60, right? Like they have Joe Wall as a top 10 guy this year. And mm-hmm. like, like he's, he's there in both categories despite only, you know, playing in 15 games. Like he's, he's been as good as anybody in the NHL other than, yeah, Thatcher Demko is very much the top. Jonathan Quick is there too. But yeah, you look at his numbers and he's almost in line with uh, like the Connor Hellebucks of the world, which is, yeah, pretty, pretty awesome for Joe Wall. So yeah, I think the talent is there. The team looks good in front of him. I just, it's a lot of injuries for a young career. And I do wonder what the conversation would be like amongst the fan base if, you ended up having another injury before the playoffs and you said, oh, wait, uh, Martin Jones is your only goaltending option before you have to go to the AHL. Yeah, and that's definitely problematic. Mm-hmm. So maybe you're playing with fire a little bit there. I mean, Wool has had a ton of injuries. Mm-hmm. So and like I said, maybe you go with a three goalie option and then right before the deadline, you need to decide what you're going to do. Yeah, but I think if you do that, you still have to find a way to bring in some other goalie. You know, like there's got to be some other depth piece within the organization that's between, like, I don't even, who's, who's the next guy? Well, Hildeby has been amazing in the NHL, say, but he's 22 him? years he's 20, old yeah. and has never played at this level. Yeah, I can't, I'm sorry. I, I know some people that really cover junior or the, the, the prospects are very, very high on Hildeby and what his future could potentially bring. But yeah, my 22 year old goaltender, ask him to come up with uh, the weight of the expectations of this market on his shoulders. I'm not really uh, ready for that. Anyways, uh, James, thanks for this, buddy. I always appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, JD. See you, pal. Uh, there goes James Myrtle, senior managing editor at The Athletic. But yeah, anyway, I, I just, I'm in a good place with the Leafs right now. All right. I'm in a good place with the Leafs. And I think that you should be too. I like the depth. I think that they've got plenty of players. Yes, removing those two guys has been massive for the team. Those were really tough signings from Tree Living. But again, they were one-year... Well, they are both one-year deals because Reeves can be buried immediately, right? And that was always the thing we didn't talk about enough. Yeah, you got a lot of money. Yeah, it was a miss. You could see what they were trying to do, but ultimately, you got to be able to have some kind of impact on the ice to, I think... Meaning, meaningfully affect the the attitude of a, a dressing room. And sorry, but it was it was a lot of talk from Reeves during the off season, only to come in and then just like not even be able to get on the ice to uh, impose his impact. But the I'm, I'm telling you, the tree living moves of Lagason hit, Benoit hit, Martin Jones hit. Not extending Samsonov, hit. Bertuzzi, hit. Domi, hit. It's a lot. It's a lot of good moves right now for this team that are, that are really contributing and maybe starting to come together. And we've always talked about, hey, like there's a lot of turnover with the Toronto Maple Leafs, sometimes a little bit too much. Sometimes you wonder, well, I certainly do and still do, about the mercenary effect of this team, of certain guys knowing they want to get their contracts extended or they want to be able to get paid at the end of the year and what happens when adversity hits. Are they really going to feel like they can come together as a group and they're going to feel like, oh man, it's us against the world when there's so many players on the team that have to be thinking about their future finances. We'll see. But as of right now, I think they deserve a ton of credit for the way that they've played. I think that they look awesome. And I think that the Pittsburgh Penguins 
Say what you want. Sure, they've had injuries too. So have the Leafs. Leafs have found a way to win. They found a way to not be one of the worst teams in the NHL. Like, yeah, Kenny Malkin is washed and he didn't sign that contract or he's not the same player that he used to be. Neither is Latang. You brought in a player. You took a huge swing on Carlson. Didn't have to happen that way. Could have been somebody else. Could have kept that powder dry. Could have made a move like that later on. Just, just like seeing where your team was at. Because now we're talking about the Penguins trying to do the half rebuild. It's like, well, you did just make this move for Carlson. You probably should be criticized for that. You remade the bottom six. And this is a team that doesn't really have a lot of depth. They signed Ryan Graves and the contract looks really bad. So yeah, I, I do. I'm sorry, but I don't think that Kyle Dubas has had a good year. I think that's pretty damn clear at this point that it is, it has really not been good. Early returns on his tenure as the Penguins president and GM are that maybe he needs to step more into the president role and less with the GM stuff. Anyway, let's take a quick break. Uh, We have to do it. We have to do it. But it's so hard. It's so hard. Jumping back into Toronto Blue Jays rumors and reports. That's next. So, yeah, I don't know what the appetite is for Jay's rumors right now. Because I'll admit, personally, I'm torn. I know how I feel when I see this stuff right now. It's like, oh, all right. I'm hyper curious with what the Blue Jays are going to do next. I don't know how you couldn't be. It's an incredibly difficult pivot point, and it's fascinating from a lot of different angles, right? The fan base is pissed off. There's no ideal solution anymore, even though Shohei, again, I, I have really, I, I, I'm not going to lie, I wanted Shohei so badly. Again, I, I almost cried when I thought he was going to be a Toronto Blue Jay, but there, there was at least a case where you went, all right, he's going to be the DH. If he doesn't pitch again, how great is the fit? Unless you're moving him to the outfield and he's really going to play some games in other spots, how, how, how is this going to look with the rest of the team with an aging George Springer, Vladdy? needing DH days. The team having other players that you'd like to be able to put in that spot from time to time, knowing that Shohei Otani was just going to be like your full, pure DH. But yeah, right now, you you look at the rest of baseball and you say, yeah, all right. You don't have a ton of prospects. The most interesting guy to trade for is going to require you to dump every single one of your prospects, if not, maybe even more. Like, do not, do not get caught up in the fantasy trades where you're thinking, oh, yeah, maybe the Blue Jays will get a little cheap, a little sweet deal. Mm, I don't think so. I don't think so. A lot of the trade options are, you know, they come with pretty big risks, like... You mentioned the Yelich stuff and how, like, all right. The back, a lot of people that we've talked to mentioned the back, how it could be a major issue. But yesterday, Bob Elliott, or sorry, uh, Bob Elliott did report that the Jays were checking in on Jonathan India, which, whatever, he's a fine second baseman. Not great, I don't know. Doesn't seem like a real needle mover for me. But fine, sure. But they checked in on him. I'm guessing they're checking in on a lot of different players and a lot of different teams right now. But yeah, no, Bob Nightingale reported that the Jays have emerged as front runners for Cody Bellinger. Um, make of that what you will. 
how I feel about it right now is broken by the Shohei Otani thing and the feeling as though maybe Toronto was never in it. Do I think that ownership put up that money and was willing to meet Shohei on whatever his con- like his contractual demands were? Yeah, I do. I-, I think that there's enough concrete reporting that says that everyone here made their best effort to try to get that thing done. But now looking at the entire picture and especially the way that, you know, CAA ended up doing things and the, the connections Shohei has in Los Angeles, it's harder and harder to believe that he was ever actually at, like truly going to come here and that he didn't use the Jays as leverage. And so that's how I feel reading this Cody Bellinger report. And that's what sucks is had the Jays signed, I, I mentioned this already, but had the Jays signed Shohei Otani, it, it would have meant that doubt goes away. Right When you read a report of a Blue Jays player coming here and you just go, oh, they're just using us for leverage. Well, you would always be able to counteract that with, man, the Jays got Shohei, okay? They signed the number one free agent ever. So how can you say that about this player? But now when I see these reports and I look at Cody Bellinger, it's like he wants over $200 million a year, right? And it's all of a sudden the Jays have emerged as front runners. It feels the bridesmaidy stuff is back again, right? That To me, this reeks of Cody Bellinger wants to play somewhere else He's not happy with the money and the offers that he's getting from other places. And so they're putting it out there that the Jays are the front runners again. Like this just feels like the exact same thing over and over. And I, like I said, I, I'm, I'm on the record as not the biggest Cody Bellinger fan. I will say that I really like the glove. I like the idea that he can be versatile and he can play all the outfield positions. He can play first base. Um, there's some real questions about how much luck was involved in the season that he had last year. Really good two strike hitter. Love, 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 love adding that swing. It's a gorgeous swing. He's a cool player, cool style. Not sure he's going to have a 2 million or $200 million impact on the blue Jays. Does feel a little underwhelming. I have seen Cody Bellinger have some really tough seasons where, you know, you get that version of him or he regresses back to that, and you're talking about genuinely the, the worst contract in baseball at $200 million. Like the player that he was before the bet on himself season last year in Chicago, you sign him to that deal. Whew, nightmare. True, 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 true nightmare. So I have my reservations. Will I be excited if he signs here? Of course I will. How, how could you not be? You're talking about a premier free agent. You don't end up having to give anything up for him. The Jays don't have a lot of prospect depth, so I still think that free agency is the best route. Some of the other guys that are just like mashers like Solaire, again, it's just the DH thing. So having someone who can actually play the corner outfield position would be great. So I try to do this exercise and I try to think about what Bellinger would look like as a Blue Jay and whether or not this is realistic, but I keep getting undercut by that feeling of dread of, hey, don't have any optimism. Don't believe that this is real because the last time you believed that it was real, you ended up having to sit in front of the mirror and put the clown makeup on. You had to sit there painstakingly and stare yourself in the eyes as you pulled that wig over your head. So like maybe, maybe they're the front runners. Maybe this is something. But I, I, I can't get excited the way that I have in the past. I, I just, I can't even look at this and have the same conversations with people that I would have normally because I, who wants to even remotely get 
their hopes up right now on free agents. Who doesn't feel like they're just being used again? Who doesn't feel like Cody Bellinger is, uh, yeah, using the Toronto Blue Jays as an ends to a mean? Do you think that lack of excitement will carry into the season, JD? Yeah, I do. Uh, I do. I, I think here's here, the, this is the way that I do think that the season's going to play out. The Blue Jays have a pretty good foundation. People, they don't want to acknowledge that because they hated the team so much. And I get it. You want to see some changes. You wanted to see some drastic changes. And if they end up like re-signing Matt Chapman and run this thing back, right, and make some minor tweaks, add a, a DH bat, you know, they go get Soler and Chapman. And that's the offseason. And, you know, Stroman apparently is in town. And they add Marcus Stroman, which I don't think is going to happen. But let's just say for the sake of funsies that it does. I don't think that there's going to be a real excitement to go down to the ballpark. I think that people are going to look at the Vladdy story of, man, he's in shape now as not an eye roll, but yeah, all right. Like, just prove it. We, we're not getting the credit for getting in shape anymore. Like, we're, we're, we're beyond that, I think, with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. It's like, hey, man, yeah, good. You're in shape. You should be. Awesome. Alec Manoa, good. You're in shape. You should be. It's awesome that you guys are taking this seriously. There's a lot of money on the line for you too. So yeah, get it done. Make sure that you put your, be- your best foot forward and that you're in a good position. I don't think that there's really much they can do that is going to entice the fan base in a way that is going to have people just, you know, foaming at the mouth for the regular season now that the Shohei thing did fall apart. I do think that Cody Bellinger would be... Like at, at this point in time, your your best course of action, because it's just like I said, I I just don't think that the Jays have enough assets. I don't want to give up Ricky Tiedemann either. I think that the fan base, from my understanding of what we've gotten back from real prospect people, that he's really overrated by this base because of what he means to a very depleted farm system. Same goes for Elvis Martinez. These are like household names, when in reality. They're not coveted around baseball the way that Blue Jays fans would think. Like, again, they're, they're not getting some of these deals done that fans would really want. I, I think if you pulled Blue Jays fans, for example, right, and you were like, hey, uh, you want to get the White Sox guy, Luis Robert, right, the masher, awesome corner outfielder for the White Sox. I think if you pulled a lot of fans and said, hey, it's going to cost you uh, Ricky Tiedemann or Alvis Martinez – uh, Manoa and maybe even, well, it should actually probably be more really based on his value and the contract that he has. Most fans I think would say, that's crazy. Don't do that. And you're like, mm, I think it might actually be a steal for the Toronto Blue Jays, but then you have nothing. Then you, then you're looking at potentially years before you have anything down the farm system. So Bellinger remains the the thing, but yeah. And when it comes to the fan base and the excitement, it's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough. But again, the team is good. I don't think the team is a World Series, a true contender right now. I think that they do need to make moves. They do need to hit on some internal improvement. They're going to have to have, you know, one of the Davis Schneider-ish types really be a hit for this team, along with the free agency. They're going to have to have positive regression with some of their bats. Like Vladdy would have to have a monster season. It's on the table, but he would have to have it. You know, Manoa would have to come back. They need to keep their pitching. Like, it's a lot of things that would have to go really well for the Jays to be contenders. But they will be a good baseball team. And so I, I think that what's going to happen is... There's a scenario where they just sort of start stacking some games. They win some more games and people start, you know, drawing back in and saying, you know what? All right. The Blue Jays are winning their how many games above 500 and then going back to the ballpark. But no, in terms of crazy excitement, fanatical excitement, I I think that went out the door when Shohei Otani put pen and paper with the Dodgers. Anyway, quick break. Let's come back. Let's talk to Brady Quinn. I got smoked. Truly smoked and... 
gambling. Also, I did, I did a thing this weekend that I'm, I'm truly embarrassed over. I, I didn't start my... I, I sat... Sorry. I started players in a fantasy football playoff that weren't playing. I have never been so embarrassed in fantasy sports ever. I work... I do this professionally. I do this for a living. I've always said, I think that, you know, I'm not a, I do a lot of sports betting. And so fantasy is just not as big a part of my life as it once was. But, you know, I run a league with everybody I know from university and try to keep in touch with everybody there. There I was, I think, second last, did extremely poor. And then my only other league that's a family and friends league was... I, I genuinely forgot to start players. And I just want to say that I have, I have never been so ashamed as a quote-unquote sports guy. Like I, when I went and looked at that, <laughs> I, I felt a deep, deep, deep amount of shame. Uh, Brady Quinn, our Monday morning insider for my NFL QB. What's up, brother? <laughs> Not much. You know. I, you know what? For the exact reason you just said, yeah. it's why I don't do fantasy. Yeah, you can't. There's no upside, right? It's like it's, it's the... Well, there's no upside, but there's also this element of I just will forget to put in a lineup. I'm going to be that guy. It's going to look really, really bad, uh-huh. and I, I don't want to put myself in that position. Yeah. It's like, okay, so I, I remember once in university, I was at a, a kegger, and there was this girl, and she was like, the, she's, I think she was like a rower or something like that. She was going around trying to like arm wrestle different guys at the party and showing that she was like really good at arm wrestling, and she was like challenging me, and I went, there's no win here. Like if I beat you then people are going to go like, yeah, congrats, Bunk. You beat a girl in arm wrestling. And then if I lose, it's like people remember forever, right? And so that's how I feel about fantasy football sometimes where I'm just like, it's the arm wrestling the girl in college where it's like I have nothing to, get, to gain, nothing to win. People say I'm supposed to do it. But if I lose, it's just like everyone celebrates it and they're gleeful about it. it. It's also like the NCAA March Madness brackets, at least in the States, um, uh-huh. where everyone fills out like 20 or 30 of them. Mm-hmm. And then you're sitting there like, well, of course you've got all of your final four teams in because yeah. you gave yourself 30 different chances. Like, how many leagues are you in <laughs> just because you won your fantasy yeah. league or you're in the finals, whatever the case is? Like, yeah. Oftentimes, they have a ton of different leagues, and this is like their only hobby during football season. Oh, I know. Free time. No, I know. I have, I have uh, one of my best friends is like that, where his entire life is consumed by fantasy football, and yet somehow he was the only person that finished below me in the university league. And I went, this is sad. This is bad. This is not good that you're devoting this much of your time to just be this terrible at something. I can't. I, I think this has got to be an eye-opening moment for you, Shawnee. Uh, okay, so the MVP race, we got to start with this today because I thought it was a really interesting week. Like, it feels like Dak gone immediately, just, you know, fired into the sun when it comes to the MVP race. If you're holding those tickets, you can tear them up. All of a sudden, uh, it feels like Josh Allen is actually this outside force that could make a run here with the Bills. Feels like maybe we took a bit of a step forward with the Purdy-McCaffrey split. But my biggest one is, why do you think Lamar Jackson isn't getting more love? It's a good question, I think, in part because the, the stats just aren't quite added to that of what we've seen from some of the other guys who are up for it. But mm-hmm. he should be. I mean, I think it's Brock Purdy and Lamar Jackson's right now to win. And I, I know we, we throw in Christian McCaffrey and Brock Purdy after the game, said he yeah. thinks we should go to Christian McCaffrey at this point. And there's probably an argument for it. I just look at it, and I, I think to myself, we, we've now basically created offensive player of the year for every other position besides quarterback, and that's yeah. what it goes to. So either Tyree Hill or Christian McCaffrey, probably McCaffrey will win that award. And then now MVP is just a quarterback award. So it's going to go to either Brock Purdy or Lamar Jackson at this point. But, look, if Josh Allen 
is able to continually put his team in a position to go to the playoffs and put up stats, mm-hmm. he'll be in the conversation. The problem is, like, this is honestly their best win yeah. maybe of the season, and he didn't have to do that much. He completed so, seven it, passes. It, it, yeah, it took, what, through 15? Yeah. So, you know, again, it doesn't take away from how great he's played or what he's capable of or if he should be considered amongst that. It's just it always ends up being a statistical argument in the end with the guys who are up there, and I don't think the stats uh, will compare, comparatively speaking, to the other teams and, and what they've succeeded in. If Baltimore's the number one seed and San Francisco's the number one seed, and what comes with that? I just think what a week for Cam Newton, you know? Like, he dominated. <laughs> <laughs> he dominated. First of all, did you see his response video? Yeah, because I think he wanted to clarify. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, like, it was good. I, my interpretation of what he said was, I don't think he was trying to make game manager out to be a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. Everybody says that, though. Even, even if you are Cam, yeah. and you're the type of guy that has to be able to elevate your level of play to elevate everyone around you, mm-hmm. there's times when you have to manage the game. Mm-hmm. Like, you're not going to need to do everything. You're not going to be asked to do everything. So, like, that's, to me, a switch. Like, are those are, are some of the guys he referenced? Because he threw in Tom Brady, he threw in Drew Brees, some of the guys who kind of called him game managers. It's like, well, maybe in parts and, and, parts and times, mm-hmm. but in the fourth quarter with two minutes left, they didn't drive down the field. He ain't a game manager then. Like, mm-hmm. Tom Brady's making every throw possible to go get in the end zone and go set up for a field goal to win it. So um, I, I think it's more of a switch than anything else for a lot of these guys and how we view them. And I think for some guys, it's like that light switch that's stuck. You know, it's like, well, it's just that's kind of the, the feeling of what they can do is trying to manage the game, distribute the football. And when they have to turn into that X gear, they can't do it. Yeah. And I, I, I think they're, you know, and that's, that's just a fact that, you know, there's a lot of guys who are extreme talented players, but there's guys who aren't. Yeah. I just, uh, I was like watching that game last night with Lamar. I went, this is why he would get my MVP nod over Brock Purdy is okay. Brock Purdy, you, you, you outline these stats and there's this just incredible statistical case for him now. Like I, I was even reading somewhere that he has had one of the best three starts to any career from a QBR standpoint. Like the only guys you can compare him to are like Patrick Mahomes, right? He's been brilliant, but you look at the touchdown passes he threw in that game where he's awesome again. And it's just they're wide open receivers. <laughs> like they're just yeah. stuck. Like he's throwing w- guys wide open. And I'm like, all right, that's awesome. Versus Lamar, who in that game against Jacksonville, he has the bad turnover. He has the, you know, the one bad pick in the game. But he's like almost 100 yards rushing. He just feels like the, the whole team is riding completely on him. He has that one play where he breaks a tackle. He f- my, finds a way to stand on his feet. He throws down the field to likely. I thought actually it was kind of a bad throw. It was into double coverage, and yeah. he floated it up, and I went, oh, my God, that's so stupid. So lucky for him, likely made the play, but I went, but he can make that play. You know, he can just put his team right. on his back. And I, like, if I'm doing this as, like, the most valuable player to a team, when Purdy got hurt yesterday, and I thought that he was going to be out for the rest of the season, part of me went, oh, I'm actually excited to see what Sam Darnold can do with this offense. Whereas if I know if the Ravens lose Lamar, they're dead. They've won 75% of their games with him as the starter the last two years. Like, he's the guy. He's the MVP. This should actually kind of be open and shut at this point. Well, I think it's because of his dual threat ability, right? Right. Like when things break down and whatever the, the play was isn't there, he's as dynamic as anyone maybe in the history of, of the NFL. So that's, that's an element that Brock Purdy doesn't have. Now, I will say this. When things aren't there, Purdy finds a way of kind of playing nifty and just making a smart play. And, and honestly, 
there's some throws he makes where it's like a little awkward body or he scrambled up the pocket, kind of flicks it out there, the Kittle or someone else, Yusek or whoever, and, and he just always seems to make that throw. Like that, that odd throw where it, it doesn't seem like it's the hardest throw, but it's a lot harder than I think we give him credit because of the pressure or because of how he has to, you know, contort his body to then make that throw. He makes it. And, like, as for every wide open throw you see him make, go back and look at the ball placement on the Debo Samuel back shoulder. Like, mm-hmm. then he throws a ball that's just absolutely perfect. It couldn't be any better. And, of course, Samuel makes the play, but it's just an example of, look, he's playing at a really, really high level. He should be right up there with Lamar. Is he the benefactor of Kyle Shanahan's play calling, all the town around him? Of course he is. But he's also operating within that. Like, there was this quarterback named Joe Montana who kind of did the same thing. Mm-hmm. He had the best player maybe ever in Jerry Rice. And he was in a great system with Bill Walsh. Like, I don't think people ding Joe Montana just because he played in arguably one of the greatest systems in the history of the NFL. So I think that's the hard part with Purdy is sometimes we, we kind of take away from what he's doing because of what he has around him and this era of football that we're in. But we should just appreciate it because he's operating as high level as anyone right now. Yeah, I agree. And this is, this is, I think, the problem that we have with this debate between the two guys is everyone doubted Purdy so much and just said, well, he's only the benefactor of these guys. And without these guys, he's nothing. And he's basically just, you know, Jimmy G or something. like. And I think he's good. And I think he's better than that. And we're, and we're seeing how good he actually is. But, yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that the weeks they were missing Debo and Trent Williams, those were we see the three-game losing streak for the Niners. And I'm saying, hey, those guys, like Trent Williams to me, might be more important on that Niners team than Brock Purdy. Like that's how I feel about it. I don't know if Christian McCaffrey is, but I think it's like close. I feel like some of those receivers, it's, it's close. Whereas with Lamar... This year, it's like, how many injuries have they had? They lost Dobbins the second the season starts. They lose Mitchell last night, and you go, how the hell are they going to be able to do this? And then he starts running the ball more and puts the game away. His receivers are like old Odell Beckham Jr., who doesn't look at all the same anymore, dropping passes. He's lost Mark Andrews, who was his big security blanket, and everyone went, well, what's he going to do in the red zone? And now he, like, turns Isaiah Likely into a two-touchdown guy in in a game. It just... Is Rashad Bateman is all of a sudden back? Like we completely all had written off and said, well, that's nobody. That's nothing. Like the weapons that Lamar has right now, it doesn't feel like they did anything at all in terms of, hey, we got to build better around Lamar. And yet game in, game out, he just, he keeps finding ways to win. So yeah, to me, it's like this, this now, it, this felt like a turning point with the Cam Newton conversation about who the game elevators are. And yeah, looking now at the Ravens record and who some of the teams are they beaten and how they've beaten them. I just, I, I now have Lamar ahead in the straw poll, even though, yes, I agree with you that Purdy is better than simply just some guy who any, like we could just drop anybody in there and they would be the same as Brock Purdy with those weapons in that team. Right. And I think that's the argument that, you know, anyone's going to make for Lamar is exactly what you just said. And, and it kind of goes back to that dual threat ability where, because of his ability to run, it changes how defenses play them. It, it allows everyone else to kind of be elevated around him, and it simplifies, you know, really what they're going to see. So I think that makes it better. And I think going back to the, the comment you made about when Purdy went down and Sam Darnold went in, I, I wouldn't say I was excited. I would say I was really curious to yeah. see how Sam Darnold would play. And the one thing that I kind of took away from it was, you know, he put a nice ball out in front of George Kittle and went right through both his hands. And then I'm watching when Purdy comes back in and Kittle makes this great one-handed catch yeah. for Purdy. I'm like, well, like, that wasn't going to help the sample size there of how we're viewing this. But yeah. I, I am curious to see what, what Darnold could do in a Kyle Shanahan system because Kyle's been so successful with so many quarterbacks. I think that's the other point that other players and other quarterbacks will point out is 
dude, when you're playing in a system that has the run game mm-hmm. and the fits and the way that Kyle Shanahan's able to run the football, which takes pressure off the quarterback, but then even design pass plays that leave guys wide open as well, is they just don't feel like it's as difficult of a task to play in that system. And again, not a knock on Purdy. It's just the reality of it. I mean, mm-hmm. go through every guy that's playing a Shanahan system. They've usually had some of the best years of their career and had a ton of production, and that's a credit to Kyle, who, mind you, should be more in the conversation for coach of the year. I think he is, but maybe it's not as much as, um, you know, some of the others that get a lot of burn, like Kevin Stefanski dealing with four quarterbacks and mm-hmm. Shane Steichen, who's an odds-on, one of the top guys, too, with a backup and Gardner Minshew the whole year, and they're yeah. still in playoff contention. So there's, 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 a, there's a lot of conversations to be had about the 49ers right now in the postseason accolades, that's for sure. Yeah, I think that those guys should all get a nod and they should be discussed, but no, to me, it's a runaway favorite was Kyle Shanahan. It's like... He, like, I don't want to do the whole, remember we had the, I, I mean, I did this, so I shouldn't say we, because I don't think you did it, but there was like a real, uh, real buzz about where Sean McVay would be drafted if the NFL could do a whole draft, you know, like which quarterbacks would he go ahead of? This was like, what, four years ago now, five years ago now when McVay had the breakout yeah, year yeah. and it was like, where would he go? And then Belichick just put the the stamp down in the playoffs. It was just like, Hey, this is over now. We're not doing this anymore. We all felt like it was a little crazy, but I actually do feel like it, you would be insane if you didn't take Kyle Shanahan first overall in the coaching draft, like ahead of everybody, ahead of Andy Reed. Like, I don't care. Ahead of Belichick. Like I would 100% be going Kyle Shanahan. I'm right there with you. And I think he doesn't get enough credit to for, I think the role that he plays, not only just game planning, scheming it up, but also, I mean, remember John Lynch was his hire. He, he, he had that job lined up once they played in, in the Super Bowl versus uh, the, the Patriots that year. And, you know, he had called Lynch, and he had kind of orchestrated that. And obviously they've, they've orchestrated their front office from there. But it's kind of his show. And so even from a personnel standpoint, too, I think he's very keen to what works and who works and what doesn't and what their strengths are and how I can put them in a position to succeed. And that's why you see, you know, draft picks like Brandon Ayuk, who right now is playing as a top-ten wide receiver. I don't know that, you know, everyone looked at him coming out as having the potential to be that. Debo Samuel, a second-round pick, and look what they do with him. Um, it just it seems like they're finding different ways of, of getting the most, and Juwan Jennings and all these different players they've got, that they get the most out of putting them in a position to succeed, and that's ultimately the number one job of a coach, in my opinion. So James Cook, we said he ran for 179 yards, 5.9 per tote. Um, Allen only had to complete the seven passes. It was just an ass kicking, like start to finish, just a ass kicking. And I genuinely feel like the bills. Now you could make the case that if the playoffs started tomorrow, that they're the scariest team in the AFC. And if not, it's like them, they're right behind the Ravens for me. I have, would have them ahead of the chiefs in terms of, yeah, who scares me the most in, in that conference. Um, so that, like all that said, respect to the bills, I felt like this game was more about Dallas. Did you feel the same, or was this more about the Bills? Um, yeah, I, I think coming away from it just because they're the Dallas brand. And mm. I thought this was their opportunity to change the narrative for everyone. You know, for Dak potentially being an MVP, getting a big win versus a, a team that's a winning team on the road, uh, for this team to play well on the road because they've stunk when they've played on the road. Or I should say they've, they've been average at best. And in, in this spot, versus a team that's surging, that's maybe the hottest team in the NFL, as you pointed out, they got physically pushed around. And I actually thought going into the game, that was the opportunity that they had, that they had to be the more physical team, and they weren't on either side of the football. And look, I think more than anything else, Joe Brady 
and him bringing that identity to this offense because they really haven't had it for a couple of years. And I think since he's taken over, that's one of the things that you can point to the most is their offensive line play has been better. They've been more physical. He's been better at helping them find edges and getting angles on blocks to create holes in the run gap, you know, the gap scheme, and even just finding ways of getting Cook, you know, I, I isolated on linebackers. We saw that two weeks ago. We kind of talked about it. This week, instead of he runs the seam, they run Cook on a little corner route. He's wide-ass open. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, you kind of get these different um, looks from Joe Brady, too, that they weren't getting before. And, and honestly, Cook is their best, their second-best offensive player, um, we're not including Josh Allen, from Stephon Diggs. So, you know, honestly, like, they've found a way of getting the next best guy touches and making it impactful, and I think it's created headaches for a lot of defenses. So, um, to me, yeah, it was more about Dallas and kind of now the question marks. It brings up the scar that they had on the road, how bad they got beat by San Francisco. But this is still a team that, as you mentioned, no one wants to see Buffalo in the playoffs along with Baltimore. And, honestly, the only other team I throw in that mix is if the Miami Dolphins can look how they did yesterday and just demolishing the Jets the way they did without Tyreek Hill, that's a scary team if Tyreek Hill's back healthy and if their defense can play the way they did last week or excuse me, this past week. Yeah, my thing is, is the Jets' offensive line is maybe the worst I've ever seen in football. Like, there's just the the idea that Aaron Rodgers was ever going to survive behind that. Like, I was a Jets doubter at the very beginning of the season because of that line, and then you saw it in practice where it's like, Snap, sack, snap, sack. And it's just, it, nobody has a hope back there. Like, I don't care. I do not care what quarterback is behind that offensive line. I don't think anybody could make that work. No, it's the number one thing they need to address in the offseason. And, and, like, I would love to see Aaron Rodgers come back just to be able to see Aaron Rodgers create that feat of coming back that soon from Achilles injury. Uh, and I think you could make the case, too, look, if he was able to tear it and recover and come back this soon, I, I mean, what is the risk? I mean, obviously, he's a little older, but if he tears it again, all right, to repair it, he has more time to repair for next year at this point. Mm-hmm. So, uh, look, I, I'm, I'm being tongue-in-cheek. Obviously, you don't want to, like, tear it a second time. Mm-hmm. But I still would love to see that feat, I think, for Jets fans, considering all the hype that went into it before the season. Yeah, just, boy, now you got to keep that OC. Now you might have to keep that coaching staff, that front off. It just, it's a... It's it's a tough time to be a Jets fan. I mean, it it always has been. I think it's now thirteen years no playoff no playoffs. But yeah, that one yep. that one was rough. <laughs> like, oh, we got a little momentum. It's like, nope, your division rival kicked your teeth in and reminded you of all the bad things you have. Yo, buddy, I know you got to run today. Uh, but thanks for jumping on. I appreciate it as always. Always a pleasure. Looking forward to it next week. Yep. See you, pal. Uh, Brady Quinn, our uh, Monday Morning Insider, former NFL QB. Okay, so I got a lot of different stuff that I'm gonna break down here because I couldn't get them all to Brady today. Okay, first of all, all like all the credit to the Bills. I've been saying this for forever, that it always felt to me like they were one weapon away. And maybe that weapon is James Cook because he'd had some flashes this year, but this game, he was just dominant. And the offensive line was killer. They just bullied that Dallas D line. So I, I do want to see it like that against somebody else, but just knowing that they have this other guy who can actually pop and who can make him play and who can cut one back and who's dangerous in open space... I love, I love that for the Bills' chances. The other part of it is, I think it's probably really good for their team that they have a win that isn't just everyone praising Josh Allen for putting the cape on and being Superman and bringing them together a little bit. Because their season's been a little up and down, and they have their biggest win of the year against the Chiefs, and what happens? It gets robbed of them because Mahomes went LeBron and was like, I lost, now I'm going to cry and make it all about me. And it's like, boy, you really... Stole the LeBron 101, but you, you went to page one of LeBron 
and you cried about the refs or you cried about the break or you thought about retirement, whatever it was, but you made it about you and not the other team. And so we didn't really actually spend that much time talking about the Bills game. Instead, it became, oh, you know what? Maybe if it's not for the foot, the, the Chiefs win that game. And what is this for the Bills? This was just a wire to wire beat down, beat down. And the Bills lose that game. And, and we're just writing them off. We're going, you know what? All of this was fraudulent and screw it. And we hyped them up too much, but they endured too much this season. They weren't that, they weren't that team. Forget about them. And instead they came out at home in front of their home crowd and they just, you know, out, they just out muscled the Dallas Cowboys for the entire game. Embarrassing. There's nothing more defeating as a football fan than if you're a Cowboys fan watching that game, because you hate, hate, hate watching football when the other team just bullies you when the other team is just like, we're bigger, stronger, tougher, and you guys are soft and we're just going to chunk play you with the, with the ground game. We're just going to eat you up on the ground and our guys are going to push your guys down and you're going to get completely trampled by us. And so for the bills to do that kind of a trampling to the Dallas Cowboys after all the hype, that's a big one for the old Buffalo bills and bills fans. What I've been saying to you all along, this is exactly what you needed. You needed the whole humbling thing with everybody saying the window's closed, the window's shut, nobody believes in you. You being the front runners, I hate that. I hate that for tortured fan bases. What I like is this, is where the Buffalo Bills have had dirt kicked on them, where everybody has said they're done, they're finished, it's over. Shut the window, close the door, new coaches, new everything. This isn't going to fix something. Too many injuries on the defense, too old, not enough. Not enough weapons for Josh Allen. Too much reliance on Josh Allen. Not the right usage of Josh Allen. Go on down the line. Everything has been complained about. And then, should have gotten DeAndre Hopkins. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's where we're at with Buffalo. And all of a sudden, I, okay, so Brady likes Miami. I remember what happened when Buffalo played Miami. Ass kicking. I know what happened when Buffalo played the Chiefs. They were better. I know what happened when Buffalo played the Eagles. They were better. They let Philly back in that game, and Philly stole one from them. And now I've seen them absolutely eviscerate, blow the doors off of that Cowboys team. Joe Burrow's not around, and maybe there's something to be said about the way that the Bengals are playing with my guy, UW legend, Jake Browning, who took us to a college football playoffs for a very, very embarrassing I don't want to say embarrassing, but it's like you lose to Bama. But yeah, a def- a deflating finish to uh, a fun college football year for UW. Um, I don't know what it says about the Bengals, but yeah, the, the boogeyman for the Bills was the Bengals, and they're not the same. They're not there. You're not feeling, oh no, you know, Joe Cool is going to show up and, and rob the Bills of their season. It's like Lamar and the Ravens. And I listen, like I said, I think Lamar is the MVP. Right now, to me, yesterday was a real stamp in that was like, hey, you know what? Cam Newton was right. No more game managers. Let's give MVP to the guy that isn't just, you know, the quarterback on the best record team or the best team. Let's give it to the guy who means the most to his organization and who's actually winning games and and putting it all together. And I'm sorry, that's Lamar. And he's not going to have the passing yards and there's going to be moments where he doesn't look like the guy, but he's the guy. He's he's 100% should be the guy as of today. Ahead of, I like the way that Cam Newton says Brock Purdy. It's like, Brock Purdy. (laughs) <laughs> I like the way he says Pire Day. I was like, yeah, that's a good, I like that one, but it's Lamar for me. Anyway, if you're the bills, that's your toughest challenge is going on the road and beating the Ravens and they're nasty at home and they win a ton of games, but like they're beatable, you know? 
And when you kind of get the ball moving on the ground against the Ravens, you know, you're in a tight game with them. You're playing Lamar, who also puts the ball on the ground a ton. Like, he's got 70-some starts. He's got 53 fumbles. I'm just saying, it's, this, is not a, this is not a situation where if the Niners have home field and it's the Cowboys who have been completely owned by them going in there, you feel like, okay, good luck. Good luck. You're going to need a miracle. I don't think it's going to be a miracle. I think it's kind of a coin toss game between the Bills and the Ravens. So right now, I just feel like, you know, the NFC was all about the, the game managers at the top, the talented deep teams, and now the AFC is about you're going to have the, the all-star total truck quarterbacks Jackson, Allen, Mahomes, and those three guys and whether or not they can carry their teams. But yeah, there's just a swagger to the Buffalo Bills. There's a, I just like that they had the everybody wrote us off angle. That's been a powerful thing in the NFL. That's a powerful thing in sports. And when a team gets to actually apply it and it doesn't feel corny as hell where it's the Patriots and they go, no one thought we could win. And everyone's like, you win all the time. No one ever thought you were done. But for the Buffalo Bills, there's a little bit of extra swagger there right now. And being America's team like that doesn't make up for the, the past where the Cowboys, you know, have had a far greater track record. But this one is a... Uh... That was a sexy win for the Buffalo Bills. That was a very, very sexy, sexy, sexy win. And if I'm – so there's two thoughts I had actually off the Cowboys, though. One is who's to say that you're not going to get bullied again like that because they're D-line and they're linebackers and it's just like you guys are a front-runner team, okay? The other part of it is they're 7-0 and at home and now they're 3-4 and on the road. And so if you really wanted to believe that this Cowboys team was different, which we were all trying to do and we were all trying to propagate, hey, Cowboys are different, baby. So the whole set of new Cowboys. I think the Cowboys are better. I think that Dak Prescott is better. I do. I think that he's having his best season as a player. Um, I have more faith in Dak than I ever did before, and I have more faith in him than I ever thought that I would. But you look at that game, and what did you think? Was Did you re- ever really feel like, don't worry, Dak's going to find this, and he's going to steady the ship? It was like after the first couple drives, you were like, Dak ain't doing nothing today. And I feel like the Cowboys, now that they are going to have to go on the road... Now that the path for them to a Super Bowl is through San Francisco and through Philly, it's over. C'est fini. And yeah, hopefully this ends up getting clipped for you Cowboys fans in a long, long, long montage of people who didn't believe in you. But yeah, I just have a tough time thinking that the team that got bullied like that, where Dak Prescott got exposed like that, where you're three, three and four on the road like that, and you're going to have to do road playoff games that things are going to be different. So congrats, Cowboys. You're better than you were in years past. Maybe you can build off of that, but I don't know. I think you're in the tier. We all thought maybe you were in the top tier of contenders, and that game made me feel like, nah, sorry, you're one step below. The second part of it, though, is the way I feel about Knicks Eagles, which is, all right, if the Buffalo Bills could bully a team like that, and the Niners bullied them too, by the way. Niners were just, they out physical, they, they just brought the physicality to the Cowboys and they humbled them. But if the Eagles, the so-called physical team with the big offensive line and the quarterback with the strongest legs in maybe NFL history based on like what he squats and them building a play that for whatever reason has completely broken 
Roger Goodell's brain. If he and that Eagles team can't move the ball against that front that way, well, there were some fumbles and some turnovers in the Eagles, but I was like, oh, yeah. Maybe it's making me feel a little bit different about the Philadelphia Eagles, too. And maybe it makes me feel like the team that we watched, granted, play the Arizona Cardinals, but just thump them the way that we expect them every single week. The team that has been able to stay healthy with the Trent Williamses and the Debos and the Ayukes and the McCaffreys. Ah, Did you so- catch the, uh, the coordinator change? The quiet one that the Eagles made this weekend? No. Matt Patricia is taking over the play calling duties. For you who? Remember Matt Patricia, right? For, For who? Uh, Sean Desai. Sean Desai was. Now he's moving to the booth. For what? For the Eagles. For the D. Yeah, defense. Yeah, Matt Patricia, defense. Yeah, that's good. He, well, no, he I can't don't. do offense. Yeah, <laughs> no. Well, he but he had been given actually that responsibility. Anyway, yeah. I don't think maybe maybe he helps change it, but I just think your personnel on defense is actually not that great. But the bigger issue is that the Eagles' offense just doesn't push people around the way that they did. Maybe that happens in the playoffs, but I I don't I, I don't I feel it's the a tunnel vision thing with with um with uh, a quarterback. You know, if you're giving the ball to to Brown and, and Smith 60% of the time, it's not going to work. You've mm. got to spread it around like you did last year. Maybe. I just think that the, still the, the calling card of the Eagles was physical, 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 physical team in both the trenches. Mm. And all I'm saying is that after that Cowboys loss, looking at that Cowboys team against the Bills and looking at that Cowboys team against the Niners, who I think are two true blue contenders, I'm just a little bit more suspect of divisional the Eagles. Divisional game, divisional game. I'm just I mean, a little bit more suspect of the Eagles after that one. And let's just say, you know, uh, and my Hawks play your Eagles tonight, and it's an important Ooh. game for Seattle. It's an important game for Seattle because if they win this game, they're back in the playoff race, and if they lose, they're completely out of it. Um, but we've beat, we've beaten the Eagles. I think the, I think the Seahawks have not lost a game to the Eagles since something like 2006. This is an amazing run. We dominate the Eagles. Tomorrow morning's coffee uh, talks are going to be fun. <sighs> no. It'll be awkward. Yeah, I just, it's, it'll be fine. I'll feel great. Um, but yeah, I'm just saying that might have a little bit more faith in the Hawks than I would have normally against that Eagles team just based on, you know, Eagles a little soft potentially, a little soft potentially. Can't anyway. push push all 80 yards. Yeah, exactly. You got one play. Cool. Good for you. Um, anyway, uh, okay, so yeah, the, the Eagles now basically clinch that spot though and that's huge for them. Takes a lot of the pressure off this game and I wonder that, how that's actually going to affect them tonight. Um, two other quick things though. I'm going to rapid fire through these things before we take a break and do what we missed. Number one is uh, I... I'm having trouble placing the Browns in the contender tiers. Is I'm looking at the NFL standings and I'm I'm trying to figure out like what teams are where. And I'm sorry, I know Dolphins fans hate my guts for this, but I just I don't believe in you at all. Like I just I don't. I think you're the Tyree Kill team and Waddle was awesome in that game, but the Jets, the beating up on the Jets offensive line and Zach Wilson, you know Trevor Simeon, that doesn't really do much for me. Um, I got to see the Dolphins beat a good team and do it in convincing fashion for me to actually feel any kind of way about them. I just, I just think they're too incomplete and they're too game script dependent and they're just too reliant on one player being special for them to be anything. Um, I've already said my piece about the Chiefs. I just think they're more vulnerable than in years past. I don't trust Mahomes and the offense to be special with the playmakers they have. And even this weekend, there's another one where Kadarius Tony drops the ball in somebody's lap. And I just feel like in a playoff game against a really good team, a tight game, those receivers are going to come into play and it's going to hurt them. And I also don't think Travis Kelsey is the same guy. I said what I said about the bills. I think that they, 
if I'm being honest, in my heart, I think they're the most dangerous team in the AFC right now, as of today. But you have to respect the Ravens. You have to give them the number one. But I think that they're the 1A and they're the 1B. The Jags, I have no respect for the Jags. Trevor Lawrence just, you know, he's, he's, got, he's got a 10-cent brain. I'm sorry. I just, like, what are we supposed to say about this anymore? Like, I'm so tired of the Trevor Lawrence overhype. Like, he's got long hair. He was good in Clemson. He, uh, before the year, we were putting Calvin Ridley and Trevor Lawrence and these weapons in the Hall of Fame, and it's just, it's just dumb plays. Like, dropping the football, the end of the half where he decides to try to throw into the flat where guy gets clearly tackled, doesn't even collect three points. I don't trust Trevor Lawrence. I think that... Trevor Lawrence does the best job of when he can deliver a throw and he can throw the laser beam. He can make all the throws, right? And when he makes them, he looks gorgeous. And you go, oh, my God, that guy's amazing. But the entire body of work now is telling me something pretty clear, which is at this point of his career, I'm not trusting Trevor Lawrence to win me big football games. Everybody else in the AFC South is completely irrelevant. So that brings us to the Browns. Where do we put the Browns? Because the defense is nasty, and they swallowed up Justin Fields yesterday. And I think it was a little lost, their performance, because the way the game ended, where it was uh, the Hail Mary that should have been caught by Mooney, and Bears fans were like, oh, poor us, boo-hoo, why never us? And then, you know, DJ Moore's talking to the media about how Justin Fields is the best, and they need to run it back with Fields, even though all of us know that there's no shot that they're ever going to pass on one of those top two QBs, or especially if it's the top QB. Um, but, yeah, I kind of think that... Uh, Here's what I would say. It's clearly Bills, Ravens at the top. Then it's the Chiefs. You have to respect Mahomes. But I actually think that the scarier outcome playoff time ahead of the Dolphins is the Browns and now Joe Flacco. The Flacco magic, they're not winning a, they're not winning a Super Bowl with Joe Flacco, okay? They're just not. But how sweet would it be if you're a Browns fan and maybe you ended up in a situation where you played the Ravens in a playoff game and you beat the Ravens with Joe Flacco? You know, that, that's a pretty, that's kind of as close as you could ever get to a Super Bowl if you're a Browns fan. Beating the Ravens who robbed you Poetic. with their quarterback? Joe Flacco beating Lamar? I'm just saying that, that that's spooky energy to have out in the universe if you're a Ravens fan and you're watching, you're paying any attention to that Browns team right now. That's all I got to say about the Cleveland Browns. My Browns. I'm on the Browns. My Browns. <laughs> I, but I've got my teams this year, 100%. Buffalo Bills, the Browns, obviously the Lions, and nice weekend for the Lions, even though I actually bet against them in the cowards. I, I put uh, Broncos 10 and a half. I just thought, oh, you know, they're not going to be able to get stops, and Broncos will get a turnover in this game. And then Jared Goff is his best game of the season, five touchdowns. But still, after what we've seen with the Lions defense, I just, yeah, I have a... Lions aren't beating the Niners, everybody. I don't think anybody's beating the Niners, but I actually think that the best shot in the NFC today, the Rams. Rams. Divisional game, divisional weirdness. McVay, Shanahan, Stafford playing the way that he is. Those pass catchers being able to make plays. Their defense being good. The actual sneaky physicality of the Rams running game, which I think could throw the Niners off. I just think that that game could be close. I think that the Niners will kick the ever-living crap out of the Eagles. I think they'll kick the ever-living crap out of the Niners, or sorry, the Cowboys. But I think that the Rams represent the only shot to beat the... Oh, sorry, I don't say, shouldn't say the only shot because it's any given Sunday. But the best shot right now is the Rams. I have the power rankings of the NFC. Niners won by a million miles. 
Rams two at seven and seven, Eagles three, Cowboys four. That's the way it is. All right. And anybody who thinks differently straight up isn't paying attention and they're going off of past accolades. The Rams are a beast. The Rams are actually good. And don't forget, this was a team that at the beginning of the year, everyone was saying, oh, they're going to have the first overall pick in the draft. Are they the worst team in football? How many games are they going to win? Yeah, they're really, really good. Last thing. It was 45 cent night at the Panthers game. And I said that they're the most hopeless franchise in the hopeless franchise rankings. Uh, that is conclusive proof that I was right. There is no 45 cents. Just let people go for free. Like, let people go for free. 45. And it was still empty, too. I know, but 45 cents, man. That's, you can't, I act, I'm not even kidding. I don't think you can come back from that as a franchise. I don't think you can come back from being a franchise that charges people 45 cents to get into a building. In I just their think you're defense, over. there was like a, like a no. hurricane, like a light no. hurricane. No, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta board up the stadium. You gotta burn it down. You gotta salt the earth. You gotta move to a different town and try to start new with different branding, different everything. You gotta, you gotta start anew. You, you can't, you can't have this anymore. And they won the game. They had their best game of the year. Well, they, they, they I, not I, saying much, but it was year. No, it was a, anyway. I, I saw the final drive, and I will say that it, it's, it's shocking. It's shocking how. The, the Panthers are the most pathetic franchise in sports right now. Like, they are just, they're moribund. They're embarrassing. They're whatever the hell you want to call them. But Falcons are sneaky close. And especially if you consider Lamar Jackson was available. And Lamar Jackson could have been had. And the Falcons were the team that everyone went, man, he, the Falcons fans would love him. They don't have a quarterback. They've got a lot of assets. They should be moving in and trying to get... Lamar, and then all these owners colluded to try to keep the Lamar price down, and nobody went out and got Lamar, and everyone was afraid, oh, is Lamar going to get hurt? Oh, we don't know. Is he going to be worth all the money? And it's like, yeah, you know what? He's actually one of the most valuable quarterbacks in the entire NFL. He wins 75, again, last two seasons, 75% of the starts. He's won football games. He is like one of the ultimate, just put the team on his back, guys. He'll, He'll break you sometimes. He makes plays that just, you know, infuriate you. But it's Lamar freaking Jackson. And they decided we're good. We got Desmond Ritter. Insane. We got Ritter, baby. Game on the line. Put the ball in Ritter's hands. Let him all oh, throw a horrible interception when all he needs to do is nothing. Just, yeah, it's a, all I'm saying is it's kind of the Falcons not making the Lamar move. The Arthur Smith just weirdness of this season. The up and downs with the quarterback play. The misses on some of their draft picks like the... Sorry, but Drake London isn't lighting the world on fire. And yeah, part of it might be the quarterback, but like they missed on the Kyle Pitts draft. Bijan has been, what, the most underwhelming start to an NFL career we've ever had in terms of, oh, this guy's going to change the game. He's going to be new LT. I'm like, all right, he's got some nice runs. I watched LT. He ain't him. And maybe he will be with a better quarterback and a better team because he's explosive and he's fun. But I'm just saying to justify being that high in the draft and taking a running back when you had Algier the year before, when you've got that defense with kind of like mm, in that division where there's nothing except for Baker who balled out and who, although I will say that I bet on the Packers and I think Joe Barry should be put in prison and I don't think that anyone should ever let him out. He should be like the man in the iron mask. They should put him deep in a cell with that iron mask on and he should never see the light of day. Never. Joe Barry. Depths. Yeah, what did they do? They used to, the, the, the medieval, they would like chain the guy to the wall. 
you know, the <laughs> chain them to the wall, put the iron mask on. And I hate the Packers, but I actually feel bad for the way that their defense played. Like that was embarrassing. That was actually the way that the Packers defense played this weekend is a like you, you genuinely can never, you cannot, is Joe Barry fired? Has that happened already? Because like you, you can't like you genuinely, you can't let him into the building again. That's, that's, that's such a bad performance that you, you cannot, you have to say goodbye. That is so no, there's no update. He's not fired yet. Not yeah. Fired. No, it's like a Matt Canada situation, which by the way, last point that I want to make you knows. And I know that they had the injury to Kenny Pickett, whatever. Do you know that the Steelers offense has been worse without Matt Canada? Yeah. Let that soak in. Let that soak in. Let that, let that soak in. Need some higher Matt Canada chance. Yeah. Now. Let that, let that sit with you. Steelers fans. It's all Canada's fault. Oh, we'd be so good. We're the goats. Kenny Pickett's underrated. He's, you know, just get him to the fourth quarter. Jalen Warren, he's the next Tony Pollard. We don't get enough credit for TJ Watt in this defense. You lost to the Patriots. <laughs> you, you lost to the Patriots. That's the team everybody beats. Like, that's not good. Anyway, I, I actually did think it would be kind of interesting if uh, both Tomlin and Belichick were in new places next year. It's like the, the Tomlin stuff is very under the radar, but yeah. And he's in, I think he's still one of the best culture setting coaches in the NFL. I think that he actually has been kind of an underrated guy with some of the hands that he's been dealt. But at, at some point you have to look at the season the same way that you do with the Patriots and go like, listen, if the Patriots can move on from Belichick, you might need to have a fresh start here too. So Belichick's spot has been like people are speculating the Chargers would make sense. No, I hate the How Chargers. How about for Tomlin? Do you have a place no, in no, mind? No, 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 no. Uh, well, again, like, you know, I, I don't think that I, I ran into a Chargers fan the other day, which shockingly there, there is one here in the building. And he made the great point, which is like, the Chargers are really cheap. It's why they didn't go after Sean Payton. Like, it's why they kept Brandon Staley for so long, even though he's one of the worst coaches in NFL history. Like him and Hackett are hand in hand being like, I'm worse. No, I'm worse. No, stop it. I'm worse. But yeah, those two guys, a hall of fame, first ballot, bad Mount Rushmore, bad of coaches. And yet they still stuck with them because they're notoriously cheap. So I'm not sure that they end up actually getting either guy either way. Um, yeah. Uh, salt the earth for Panthers fans, bad win, but yeah. Uh, Falcons, not so far away, <laughs> you know, not, they're not miles in your rear view. They beat you. Like you're right there in the mud with them. So just let that be a reminder to you. Everybody sucks. That's what I would just basically, basically the message I want to get out there is the teams that I mentioned at the top. Awesome. Everyone else, oof, you know, tough sledding for any one of the other fan bases for all those reasons that I mentioned. Anyways, quick break. Let's hit what we missed. All right. I have a ton of time here. So I got to fly. Maybe I'll do a little bit more of this actually moving forward, but. We'll see. Um, okay. UFC 296 was on the weekend. Here's some rapid fire takes. Obviously, the Josh Emmett and Bryce Mitchell knockout was one of the most vicious ones that I've ever seen. It's just nasty. Seeing Bryce Mitchell on the mat like that was a little tough. But yeah, that's a, that's a, oof, that was a very, very nice win. I think Cody Garbrandt. He might have made a little bit of a statement of someone who's not, maybe don't write off his entire career yet. That was good for him. I mean, what, do you, what were you supposed to say about Rachmanov? That fight was as obvious as it gets. I think it was like a minus 1,000 to the betting line. Couldn't even touch it, but it ended predictably. Um, good for Patty the Batty. 
I almost feel like the UFC did him a disservice with that fight. Like, normally you get the old guy who's a name because you want to put somebody over, but it just felt, like, so sad because Tony is just so not who he was, and David Goggins yelling at him in the corner to be himself. I was like, I kind of wished Tony Ferguson just got up and beat the crap out of David Goggins. I was like, let's do that. Let's do that fight instead because, yeah, yeah. I can't think of anybody. David Goggins is annoying as hell. I'm sorry. I'm sure there's some of you that are huge fans, but I, yeah, I don't need that in my life. <laughs> when I see a David's, David Goggins clip, I'm like, nah, I'm good. I don't need to run that far from my problems. Uh, but anyways, I just didn't think it was, uh, I think Patty fighting somebody else and getting that win actually gives him more of a pop and more of a feeling of a rise. You beat Tony Ferguson at this point, what, seven losses in a row or something like that? It's bad. It's just really bad. He's got to stop running Tony out there. I don't know why Dana would step in for Chuck Liddell, but he won't step in for Tony. Like, mm. somebody's got to step in for Tony. Maybe he knows that he's just, he's not going to stop fighting or something, but it just, yeah, Tony's done. It's over. It's sad. It's genuinely sad. That guy was one of the best fighters ever. One of my biggest what ifs will be, what if he had fought Habib in their, both of their primes when Tony was Tony and Habib was Habib and that the two styles made such an interesting fight and then he tears his knee up with some cable and we just never get it. An accident, a freak accident while promoting the fight. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't think that did much for Patty Pimblett. Like, it didn't help me feel like, oh, man, Patty Starr, more on the rise. Pantoja is the real deal. He's just nasty. But it's a flyweight, so it's just never going to get the credit until you start to put together, like, an extremely long winning streak. But the biggest takeaway that I have for the weekend is just, like, enough Colby Covington. That's it, okay? Enough. Um... The guy was horrific before the fight started, genuinely. Like, for, for Dana White to go up there and say, yeah, that was crossing the line, or that was nasty, I think he said. They don't think he said crossing the line. But then he was also gleeful because he's like, the pay-per-views went up one of them. So I was like, okay, this is why you like him. But for him to fight that way after talking all that talk, just, I don't I'm good. We don't need to see him anymore. Like, is he even a draw? Good for Leon. Against but, yeah. LeBron, maybe. I don't even understand what that joke was, but... Oh, they have, like, feud. They have some oh, okay, some yeah. past beef. All right. LeBron lowers himself to that? Anyway, I'm surprised. Anyway, we got to run. Subscribe to the podcast. Leave five stars. I will see you tomorrow.